and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The Securities and Exchange Commission has a rule that requires investment firms to tell you that past performance is not indicative of future results. Fortunately, when looking to the Lord, we can rely on past performance. Lead teacher Jeff Norris starts this year's Advent series, A Season of Anticipation, with this sermon entitled Anticipate the Day, which uses various texts. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to be uh, in mainly the book of Matthew for the next four weeks after this one. Uh, We're going to be in a five-week series that's going to culminate on on Christmas Eve. And uh, it's a time for us to really sit in this season of what would God have us know and learn and press into our hearts about him, about the incarnation, about Jesus coming, but also Jesus coming again. And so today is a little bit of a framework for where we're headed. Today, we're not gonna be in the book of Matthew per se. I'm gonna read a little bit from the book of Matthew. We're gonna be in a lot of different places, really from Genesis all the way through the New Testament to hopefully give you a big picture view of how God has continually interacted with his people in a certain rhythm calling us to a certain task. And so that's where we're headed today. And I hope you'll be making plans to, to be with us through the month of December as we, uh, as we dive into these texts together. Let me pray for us before we do. Father, thank you for the great privilege it is to gather with your people. Lord, to be in your presence. And Father, we pray and ask that uh, you would indeed do a work that only you can do in our hearts this morning is as we open your word, as we consider what it says, uh, God, would would you encourage us, those who need to be encouraged? Would you convict those of us who need to be convicted? Ultimately, so that all of us see our need for you, Jesus, how beautiful you are, how deeply satisfying you are to our longing hearts. And so, Lord, we give this time to you. We ask you to bless it. And most of all, we ask you to bless it for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I am a sucker for nostalgia. I see certain things. I hear certain music. I smell certain smells. And it immediately takes me back. The definition of nostalgia is simply a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past. Good grief, that's me. If you were able to kind of be a fly on the wall in my life, one of the things that you would see happening fairly often is a routine of mine is that when I take my kids in the morning, however, sometimes I take just one of my kids, sometimes I take several of my kids to school depending on what's going on with Rachel and her schedule. And, but what I love to do is after I drop my kids off at school, after they're out of the car because they don't typically like the music that I like, I love to put it on 80s classic rock. I'm talking about Bon Jovi, Guns N' Roses, Poison, Journey, all the great hair bands of the 80s. And I just turn it up a lot of times and I rock out. And as I rock out going down the street, I I typically, not always, but a lot of times I will turn and take the scenic route to Peachtree Industrial Boulevard through downtown Buford. Why do I do that? because downtown Buford reminds me of the little town I grew up in. And all the memories come flooding back as 
His sweet child of mine plays in the background. And I take a deep breath in and I just say, ah, this is good. Right? Sometimes I'll throw in a Back to the Future theme song just to, just to add a little kick or a Top Gun theme song. And those of you of the 80s, you, you know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are not of the 80s, who are the youth are going, this dude is really weird. And that is not good music, man. We need to introduce him to better music. But I'm nostalgic in that way. Maybe some of you can identify, some of you can relate to, uh, to things of your childhood or adolescence or at some point in the past. And for you, it's because for me, it's great memories. And so you think back and you go, okay, yeah, I love being nostalgic in that way. Uh, thinking maybe, maybe, maybe part of it though is this. Maybe part of it is that we do that because maybe there's a belief within us that those are the best days of our lives. Subtle nod to Brian Adams' great 80s song, Summer of 69. <laughs> those were the best days of, all right, never mind. Um, but we believe that lie, perhaps. Or maybe they were so far the best days of our lives. Others of you maybe don't relate so much with the nostalgic thing, with looking back, because what you tend to do is because those days back then weren't the best days of your life, you find yourself on a consistent basis looking forward, hoping that the best days are to come. And so it's not so much looking back for you, it's looking forward and for me, it's maybe sometimes both, but we tend to fall to one side or the other. I tend to be a person that looks back pretty uh, consistently or maybe looks forward pretty consistently. And uh, human logic would say, and you even hear this in self-help books in different places uh, with the world's knowledge, would say, hey, don't do that. Don't look back or look forward uh, too much. Don't get consumed with those things because you'll miss what you need to see right here in the present. You don't want to be so consumed with what's coming or what has come that you miss what God or what the world has for you now. And would it interest you to know that the Bible over and over and over and over again actually says, no, 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 it's good to do those things. In fact, part of our rhythm as Christians should be to look back often, to remember back and to be a people who in the phrase I'm using this morning, what sounds contradictory, but I'll explain it in a moment, remember forward, which is a looking forward based on what God has said that we remember, oh yeah, he said this about what's to come. So we're not just looking back at what he has done, we're also remembering forward at what he will do based on what he has told us and what we remember that he has told us. And it's that rhythm of doing both in the life of a Christian that actually has profound impact on our present, on how we live now. That in fact, the very best thing that we can do as followers of Jesus is be a people whose heads, if you will, the head of our heart is constantly on a swivel between both of those realities, what has been and what will be both centered on Jesus in the work that he has done and in the work that he will do and all of it coming into my life now in a significant way, shaping me in the moment. This is the Advent season where Advent, that's what it's all about. Advent's actually from the Latin word that means coming. And I think we get the whole looking back during this time of year. I mean, this is, this is what we talk about often in church. This time of year, we talk about looking back to that Jesus came 
that the Messiah came, the Savior came, the deliverer of sins came, the Lamb came, and it was beautiful and it was unexpected and it was subtle. And we celebrate that well and we will continue to do that because that is a big part of the rhythm that we are to be a part of is looking back to the first coming of Jesus, remembering back to that. But another huge part of the Advent season is to remember that we are in this already not yet kingdom. We're in this place where God has ushered his kingdom in through his first coming of his son, but he only ushered it in in part. And that there's a second act coming And that second act is his second coming, his return. And so we are awaiting that day, just as God's people awaited the first coming, we are now awaiting the second coming as we look back to what he has done and as we look forward to what he will do. We are a people who are to remember back and to remember forward. And so let's do that. I want us to take some time to go to the scriptures to see what is it that we see over and again, over and again of, of what God has said, do this. Be a people who remember back and who remember forward. So we're gonna start all the way back at the beginning. We're gonna start in Genesis. And we're gonna start in Genesis 3, where in Genesis 3, the, the infamous story, if you're not familiar with it, if you haven't read it, maybe you're new to this whole church Thing, but Genesis 3 is the account where sin came into the world. God had created man and woman, had named them Adam and Eve, and he had made them for, for each other, but more importantly, he had made them for him. And there was no dis, uh, disunion between them. They were perfectly in union and, and in, with a communion, community with God as his image bearers. But as we know, as the story goes and unfolds, The serpent comes and he deceives. First the woman as she takes of the fruit of the forbidden tree, knowledge of good and evil, but the man was there with her, permitting her to do so. And in that instant, sin enters their hearts and sin enters the world, bringing chaos and disunity to everything. First and foremost, separation and disunity between them and their holy God who cannot be associated with sin, but also to all of creation itself, marred and fractured and tainted by sin. The human heart is destroyed by sin and all of God's creation is with it. To where in Romans 8, we read that all of creation groans for the day of redemption when Christ will come again. But it's in this context that one of the most important verses I would argue in the Bible is spoken. Sin is minutes old, sin is fresh. The taste of the fruit is still palpable in the, in the mouths of Adam and Eve. And yet God intervenes and in his just wrath and his uh, just punishment and judgment upon his people, he is pronouncing a curse upon them. He's pronouncing a curse upon the serpent, upon the woman, upon the man, and upon all creation. And it's in the midst of that that we get Genesis 3.15. And listen to what he says. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent here. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In theological circles, 
this is often called the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first proclamation of the gospel. And you go, I think I may have missed it. There's no mention of Jesus. There's no mention of Messiah or deliverer, rescuer, anything like that, but it's there. And I love this about the heart of our God. He's not freaking out. Adam and Eve don't take the fruit. And he goes, okay, uh, what do we do? Not sure what we do next, guys. But instead he says, no, 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 this has been my plan from the beginning that there would be one who would come to rescue the wayward heart of God's people. And he says to the serpent, he says, there's gonna be enmity between you and your offspring and the woman's offspring. But he's coming. And when he comes, he will crush your head, Satan. Hey, by the way, you're gonna think you have won. You're gonna strike his heel. You're gonna think that you have created uh, much damage that would take down the kingdom of God. But there's one coming. Oh, he's coming. And he will crush your head. And from there on forward, over and over again, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, God, through his prophets and through others, tells us about this one who is to come. And he tells his people over and over and over again, look to him, look to the one who is coming. And as, as history happens, and as God leads his people, what he's able to do from that point forward is he's able to keep saying to them, remember back to what I have done and see my faithfulness. I am the God who led you out of, the, out of slavery in Egypt. I am the God who promised to you that through Abraham, there would be one who would come that would be a blessing to every nation. That's in Genesis 12. Listen to what he says this. Caleb led us here last week in Genesis 17. And he says, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in him, in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Who is that? That's us. How? It's through the seed of Abram, it's through the offspring, through you, Abraham, there's gonna be one who comes who will pay the penalty of sin once and for all, hanging on a cross and defeat the penalty of sin, death itself once and for all, raising from the dead. There's one coming, Abram, and you will not see it in this life, but there's one coming who will be a blessing to all nations, not just the Israelites, but to all Gentiles as well who believe upon Christ. As the history of God's people continues, he says, remember my faithfulness, look back, but remember forward, based on what I've told you is gonna happen, you have great hope to stake your lives on what will come. He says again in Isaiah nine, a very familiar verse for us this time of year, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Again, in Isaiah 11, he says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's David's father. You see the progression that's happening here? It's through Abraham, who would eventually be in the line of David, who would Jesus would be in the line of. 
Therefore, she, uh, uh, therefore shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so this is prophesied about over and over and over again in the Old Testament as God's people are looking back and looking forward. And then he comes the long-awaited, the long-promised Messiah, the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, the Almighty God, he comes. But he's missed by most. He comes in the still of the night in a little stable outside of Bethlehem. He's born to a blue-collar carpenter and his wife. And the Jewish people want a different Messiah. They're looking for him but the one they get, they don't like. Because who the, Jew, who the Jewish people want, the Israelites, who they want is they want, they want a Messiah who's gonna come and rescue them militarily and politically. You gotta remember that God's people had not been their own kingdom. The kingdom of Israel had, not, had been in authority since almost half a millennia, a little over half a millennia, 500 plus years. God's people had been controlled by some other governing body, some other kingdom, some other king. And they had taken all the predictions, all the prophecies from the Old Testament, and they had not listened to or taken to heart the ones that talked about how he was going to come the first time. They had only paid attention to the one of how he was going to come the second time, when he would come not just as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. And so when Jesus shows up, and he's not coming wielding a sword, but taking a sword. They say, that's not our Messiah. Isaiah 61 is the very passage that Jesus, in the inauguration of his ministry, when he stands up in the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll, he goes to Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 says that he proclaims good news to the poor. And proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the Lord's vengeance. And what they didn't understand is that that whole thing that he says, and in your midst on this day, this is being fulfilled. What they didn't understand is that he's coming first to say that I'm preaching good news to the poor, meaning the poor in spirit. Those who know that they need a savior because they see their sin. And when I come again, that will be when I come. As bringing the Lord's vengeance. So we remember back. We also remember forward. Second Peter three, one and two says this. This is now the second letter. This is Peter obviously writing. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. It's that rhythm that we see throughout the scriptures. Remember, remember, remember. Remember what I've done. Remember what I said I will do. And this is how you should remember. This is what Peter says, that you should remember two things, the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So as we've been looking at just a, just a little glimpse of what the prophets said about the coming Messiah and how he was promised that he would come it was promised that he would come. Listen to the rest of Isaiah 11 that I didn't read earlier about how he will come the second time. It's there. It's all throughout the Old Testament 
both the first and the second coming. Isaiah 11, four through nine says this. It says, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is what we have to look forward to. This is what we get to remember forward with. God said he would do it. He has always done what he has said he will do. And what has, he has promised will come to fruition. And this is what we have to look forward to. A time and a place when Christ returns again, when all things have been made new, to where even the lion and the lamb lay together and the, and the little babe plays over the hole of the cobra. And this is what God's people missed. God's people, the Jewish people, they misinterpreted the Old Testament scriptures to think that this is what was gonna happen the first time he came. I remember three years ago, I got to go on a trip with my dad to, to Israel. It's a trip of a lifetime. And we had the most amazing tour guide. A devout Jewish man named Ronnie and Ronnie was just awesome. And dare I say, Ronnie knew the scriptures better than most Christians do. And uh, so we talked with Ronnie as much as we could. And I tried to be careful because I knew that every Christian group that he led probably tried to convert him. But at one point in the trip, as we were sitting, in my memory, it was the bus. It may have been a restaurant. I just remember sitting next to him and just saying, Ronnie, I want to be careful. I know you probably get this a lot, but I am so curious. You know the scriptures so well. And some of your insights have been just incredible. How come you don't believe that the Messiah is Jesus? And he went to this passage right here. He went to Isaiah 11. And he said, because the wolf doesn't dwell with the lamb and the child doesn't dwell with the cobra. I said, ah, oh, I get it. You're still waiting for the Messiah to come and do what he's still going to do. It's not just the Jewish people, it's all people who are waiting for a Messiah of their own choosing, meaning they, they want a Messiah who would deliver them in the way that they want to be delivered, missing all the while that the, the thing that Jesus came to do the first time he came was what we needed most. And that was not to be rescued militarily or politically, which is what the Jews were expecting. That when the Messiah would come, that he would go in and overthrow Rome. We didn't need rescue from that. We need rescue from ourselves. We need a rescue from the ability that we have to deceive ourselves. It all started in the garden and it continues every day until now to where we deceive ourselves into believing that there is something that we need other than God himself. And we, we are blinded to our own sin. We are blind, blinded to our own uh, inability 
to make this life work on our own. But even deeper than that, we're blinded to the reality that what we need most is not for life to work, but what we, mean, what we need most is the one who is the author of life. We need God himself through the person of Jesus. And Jesus in his infinite wisdom came the first time to deal with our biggest problem. And he will come again to bring it to full fruition. You see, Jesus came the first time as a suffering servant to deliver his people once and for all from the penalty and the power of sin. And the second time he's coming, it won't be as a suffering servant. It will be as a conquering king. The one who took the sword for you and me hanging on the cross will be wielding the sword. And the day of vengeance and judgment will be upon us. And that time will not be to deal with the, the penalty and the power of sin. That time will be to deal once and for all with the presence of sin. And sin will be no more. And the full crushing of the head of the serpent will occur. You see, Jesus came to reverse the, the curse. And that is a work that is being done progressively through his church today until it comes into fulfillment fully on the day he returns to ransom his church. And we get to participate in that as we are a people who remember back and who remember forward. The second part of what Peter said is he said, consider, remember by remembering what the apostles, uh, uh, what the prophets said, but secondly, remember what our Lord Jesus has said about all this. And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Part of me wanted to read all of Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, that would have been far too much for us this morning, but I would encourage you to do it on your own. There's some things in there that will be confusing to you. There will be some things in there that often with Jesus, you will look at it and go, uh, is, is he allowed to say that? Is that okay? Listen to what he says in Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. He says, but concerning the day and hour, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Therefore, and this is a huge therefore, in light of that, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It reminds me of the great Puritan theologian, John Owen, when he said this, he said, Satan's greatest success is in making people think that they have plenty of time before they die to consider their eternal welfare. There was a time in the life of the church, some of you are old enough to remember it, the mid 20th century into the later, latter half of the 20th century where we preached about these things a lot and people called it hellfire and brimstone preaching. And it was all centered on scaring you into belief, a fear of hell. And there was a lot that we need to forget about that style of preaching, but there's a few nuggets that we need to redeem. And one of them is this reality that Christ is coming again. And are you ready? Straight from the words, from the mouth of Jesus are these words that are spoken. 
No one knows the day or the hour. I don't even know, not even the son, only the father. Therefore, be ready. Part of that style of preaching that needs to be redeemed is to consistently uh, look at the scriptures in such a way that causes us to not only look back and celebrate the coming of Christ the first time, but to be able to look forward and with eager anticipation await the day that he comes again. Longing with great hope for the reality of the, of the full consummation of the kingdom of God and all that the new heavens and the new earth will bring with it. To remember forward. Because it has great impact on how we live now. Listen to what Peter goes on and says in chapter three. Later on, he says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what's, and he's talking about Christ coming again, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? He says again in the next verse, but according to his promise, he who, is, who promises is faithful, he will do it. He says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He says, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness as we wait? Because remember what I said, the, the human logic says, don't get too caught up in the past or in the future because it doesn't have any impact on the present. But the Bible says, no, get greatly caught up in what God has done for you in Christ and get greatly caught up in what he will do for you in Christ because both have tremendous impact on how we live now. It's actually a great motivation for the gospel. So think about it. We want to be a people who look back, who remember back, and we remember what Christ has done. We remember the cross. We remember the perfect life of Jesus that he lived on our behalf, fulfilling the moral law that we couldn't fulfill. We remember back that he took that perfection and he hung upon a cross to take the full wrath of God in our place. The wrath that we deserve is placed on him. We remember back and we realize that it didn't end there with a dead savior, but one who went and took the full wrath of God, even in the grave, only to resurrect again and defeat the penalty of sin itself. Death rising from the dead and then giving us, remembering back as we do, giving us the opportunity to believe upon him and all of his work being attributed to us as if it were our own, even though we did none of it. Even though our work warranted the wrath of God, his work warranted the righteousness and joy and approval and love of God and the swap happens and we get it through faith in Jesus. And we remember back to that. And as we remember the gospel, it fuels us. It becomes the very motivation for godliness and holiness. And so that's the remembering back part of it. But the remembering forward part of it is just as critical because as redeemed sinners, we are still dealing with the presence of sin. The power of sin and the penalty of sin are no more over us, but the presence of sin is still here. And we feel it every day and we struggle every day. And even though Jesus is gradually making us more like him, if you were in Jesus, we long for something better. We long for what's to come and we stake our lives on the promises that he said he will come again. And he promised he would come the first time and he did it. And he promised that he will come again, come again and he will do it. And, and that hope 
Not as the world knows hope, that might it happen, would it happen? No, it will happen. And that great hope, that fixed hope, that assured hope drives us to live lives of godliness and holiness today. And so gospel motivation and what has happened, gospel motivation and what will happen fuels godliness and holiness now. I would dare say sometimes when we get so caught up in the presence, in the present, and we aren't looking back and we aren't looking forward, we actually have very little obedience to obey, little motivation to obey. We must be a people who remember back and who remember forward. You may say, this all sounds good in theory, Jeff, but how does this, how does this hit? at a practical level. And as God often does, he, um, he does this with preachers a lot. Caleb will attest to it. He, he causes something to happen to where you say, are you gonna believe what you preach? And are you gonna press it into the nitty gritty of everyday life? Uh, last night, I've, I failed pretty, pretty big time as a father. And it has nothing to do with a certain game. Um, <laughs> don't talk to me about that game today, though. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can talk to me about it. Um, long after the game, I just, I just blew it as a dad. Took a situation that was not going so great and uh, didn't say a lot of things. I said a lot of things I probably shouldn't have and made a situation way worse with my own sin. We ended up huddling together as a family and talking through it and were able to make my apologies and ask for forgiveness, but I just went to bed feeling unbelievably condemned and it was as I was laying there in the bed, just, just wallowing in self-condemnation and thinking of all the ways that I'm a failure. It was as, as if the Holy Spirit said, do you, do you believe what you're gonna preach tomorrow? Can you in this moment look back? Can you remember back to what's true of you because of Christ? Do you believe that I love you more than I ever have in this moment? Do you believe I love you just as infinitely as much now as I do when you're doing it right, so to speak? Do you really believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Do you believe that no matter what you do, you can never outsend my grace and grace is over you right now? That you are forgiven and not only you're forgiven, you're adored because you're a son of mine. Do you believe that? And Jeff, do you believe that that you in this moment can also remember forward, that you can remember that I said I will come again and there is a day coming when you won't struggle like this anymore, where you won't blow it, where you won't make matters worse, when you will walk in newness of life and you will land, live in the land of complete righteousness and perfection and holiness, all centered on the glorious person of Jesus and life like you have never imagined will be yours in the new heavens and new earth. Can you look forward right now? 
Or are you going to sit in this moment only looking at all the ways in which you don't get it right? Because that's not what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to look back and look forward at me. And in doing so, find great strength, joy, and hope now. Will you do that, Jeff? That's what I felt God saying last night. I don't know if this is from God or not. Probably from me, my response was basically, if I can't, then I don't need to preach what I'm preaching tomorrow. And so I want to say to you, I, I believe it. Christ is my only hope. And if I do nothing else, then in all my failures, point my children to the one who will never fail them. Then he is more than gracious to me as a father. In all my failures as a dad, he has never failed me. And all the things that I say that aren't right or good in the moment, he has never said anything that's not right or good. He is faithful. And I hope my life and I hope your life is to believe upon him in such a way to where you are in this rhythm every single day of remembering back and remembering forward all that he is for us in Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. And we pray that you would take what was from you in this time and press it deep into our hearts. And anything that was not from you, Lord, would you would you just cause it to be forgotten quickly and that it would fall away. But Lord, we want to be a people who fix our eyes on you. And we ask, oh Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts that only you can. Draw us into yourself. Open our eyes to see all that you have done for us in the past and all that you will do for us in the future. And may we stake our hopes, our lives, our faith, our very existence on you, Jesus. And in so doing, would you satisfy us at the deepest levels? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.